You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests, Episode 10, The Depraved Lying Bishop, Part 2. A warning for listeners, this episode deals with incidents of child sexual abuse. The spring of 2002 was a period of transformation for Father James Scahill, one of the few heroic priests in this saga. After 15 years as pastor of St. Mary's in East Springfield, he decided to transfer to St. Michael's in nearby East Longmeadow. St. Michael's was suburbia, especially compared to the sirens and city noises of St. Mary's. For Father Scahill, St. Michael's was a welcome change and would be a nice place to spend his last years, shepherding a flock with love and good humor, winding down his career as a parish priest until retirement a decade in the future. There was also a more metaphysical shift in Father Scahill's life during this time, It had been a couple of months since Bishop Thomas Dupre revealed to his advisors that the diocese was lucky. The personnel files of the worst priests had been destroyed. That news had floored Father Scahill. He didn't speak out, though, because, as the priest would later testify under oath, he was still in what he called, quote, the clerical box, end quote. Father Scahill was a product of conditioning. He grew up poor in Springfield's Hungry Hill neighborhood. He attended Sacred Heart Elementary and graduated from Cathedral High in 1965. He went on to Catholic College and Seminary and then to Mount St. Mary's School of Theology in Maryland to earn a, quote, Master of Arts in the Systematic Dogmatic theology, end quote. He was a Catholic priest through and through. He had faith, a true believer. Plus, under the authority of his bishop, Father Scahill had always been a good soldier and willing participant in clergy groupthink that discouraged creativity and shunned troublemaking. It wasn't his place to argue with the bishop not his job. Yet, the news of the personnel record's destruction poked a tiny hole in Father Scahill's clerical box. He wasn't naive. The priest was well aware of the church's flaws. After all, the institution was made up of imperfect humans and some monsters like Levine. The more Father Scahill pondered the bishop's expression of glee over the destroyed files, the larger the metaphorical hole in the box grew. 
The priest kept his discontent to himself, though. That's all he could do, really. He wasn't allowed to question the bishop about the files. That'd be impertinent, and he couldn't go public with news that church officials destroyed evidence of sex crimes and child molestation. That would be suicidal because Bishop Dupre was vengeful. Father Scahill remembered how the bishop fired Father Teague and never let him be a pastor again. And all Father Teague did was call the cops on Levine for a possible probation violation. Revealing the record's destruction was so much bigger. Father Scahill felt burdened by his awareness of the destroyed evidence. It stewed in his conscience. At the end of April 2002, he reported for duty at St. Michael's, troubled by his secret knowledge of the goings-on in his diocese. The best course of action, he decided, was to do what he did best, listen. So he started his tenure as the new pastor, humbly. During his first Mass, he announced from the pulpit that he wanted to meet and speak with every single church member who was willing to talk. He wanted to hear their concerns about the church and their parish. He was there to serve them, he told the congregation, however he could. The announcement was a huge surprise for the people of St. Michael's. They were used to pastors who were either egomaniacal or distant or drunk. No priest had ever asked these parishioners for their opinion. Soon after, Father Scahill's schedule was full, packed with meetings with folks eager to share their point of view. Father Scahill got a hell of a lot more feedback than he expected. He thought he'd be hearing about parish troubles and parochial nitpicking. Nope. Every single parishioner had the same complaint. They'd read the papers and watched the news. They were angry that Richard Levine was still on the diocesan payroll, receiving a thousand bucks a month, plus benefits. They didn't want any of their weekly donations to support a child-molesting priest. They were further outraged that Levine hadn't been defrocked due to his crimes. And more than a few parishioners pointed out the irony that a convicted child-molesting priest could receive Holy Communion while divorced or remarried Catholics couldn't. Father Scahill kept his mouth shut and ears open. He heard and understood their anger, which was based on their limited knowledge of the situation. They didn't know what he knew. They had no clue to the true depth of Levine's evil and wouldn't even have been able to imagine Bishop Dupre's glee over the record's destruction or how there were other child-molesting priests still on the payroll. If the parishioners knew the whole nasty truth, they'd be enraged and be ready to storm the cathedral. And if the people of St. Michael's felt this way, the priest realized, then other lay Catholics across the diocese felt the same. They weren't being heard because no one was asking them. And Bishop Dupre was the one who needed to hear the flock's complaints the most. Perhaps, Father Scahill thought, 
It was his job to tell him. Maybe that's why God placed him in the position of attaining knowledge from his parishioners. At the end of May, during a Sunday Mass, Father Scahill announced from the pulpit that he was going to tell the bishop about the parishioners' concerns about Richard Levine. The next day, Father Scahill called the chancery. Little did the priest know that this phone call was the beginning of the end for Bishop Dupre. Father Scahill's phone call to Bishop Dupre was short and sour. You will not tell me what to do, Bishop Dupre said into the phone. I'm not telling you what to do, Father Scahill said as assertively as he could. After all, Dupre was his supreme commander here on earth. For parish priests, the bishop loomed larger and more powerful than the pope. I'm just explaining my parish's perspective. They don't want their money going towards supporting Richard Levine. They think he should be laicized. If our goal is to grow the church, really we should be listening to what the faithful have to say. The faithful do not tell the bishop what to do. And do you agree with this uh, this, this impertinence? Father Scahill couldn't lie to the bishop, but he was torn, feeling like he was both inside and outside his clerical box of obedience. So he remained quiet. To the bishop, the silence was Scahill's answer. Dupre cursed while slamming down the phone. Father Scahill was surprised by the intensity of the bishop's fury. He'd known the news he was delivering was unpleasant, but it didn't merit that degree of anger. Why was the bishop so protective of a convicted criminal who cost the church millions of dollars in legal fees and settlements? His desk phone rang, and the priest picked up. Hello, this is Father Scale. Are you able to come downtown tomorrow? Uh, Father Scahill paused. Here was his second chance to be heard. Are you open to negotiation on Levine? No, that issue is not open to debate. Well, what if a special bank account was opened so that people who want to support Levine could, by donating directly to a fund, then parishioners wouldn't feel their money was going directly to him? I asked if you were available to come downtown tomorrow. Father Scahill took a deep breath. Priests always obeyed the bishop, but not this priest, and not this bishop, not anymore. I'm sorry, sir, I'm not available, he paused again. In fact, I'm going to be very busy for the next several days. I'll have to get back to you on when I'm available for a meeting. There was no response. The bishop had already hung up. As Father Scahill began his sermon on a fateful Sunday morning in mid-June 2002, he was about to break all the rules, or, more accurately, he was giving the parishioners a chance to break all the rules, and he'd abide by their decision. My dear friends, he began, I've heard your concerns about Richard Levine and passed them along to the bishop. 
Unfortunately, he declined to take any action on the issue, and he considers the matter to be closed. There was a mild grumble of disagreement from the congregation. However, I have a document here that's been read by the board of the parish council and vetted by three different parishioners who are lawyers. The priest paused for effect. Free of charge, thank God in heaven above. The parishioners laughed. This is a short note to the bishop, he continued, unfolding a piece of paper. I'm going to read this to you. The message is simple. It's just a few sentences long, and then we'll take a vote on what to do. Do we send this letter to the bishop or not? The priest cleared his throat. We, the people of the parish of St. Michael's, have decided to withhold the weekly 6% of our collections usually designated to the diocese until Father Richard Levine is removed from the payroll and the priesthood. A resounding burst of applause interrupted the priest as the parishioners stood and clapped. There would be no need for a formal vote. Holding the 6% back and placing the money in an escrow account seemed the only way to send a message the diocese would understand. Father Scahill hoped and prayed the action would inspire other local parishes to follow suit, but unfortunately, the people of St. Michael's would stand alone in their defiance. In early July, Father Scahill and Bishop Dupre sat face-to-face in a chancery conference room. The bishop ordered him to stop withholding the money, and the priest refused. You know I could suspend you from the priesthood this very instant, Bishop Dupre said, and my problem would be solved. I know you could suspend me, the priest said. Father Scahill also knew that his suspension would generate more bad publicity for the diocese. Six months earlier, the Boston Globe's scoop on the Boston Archdiocese cover-up of child sex abuse had hit the newsstands, and now the rest of the American media was aggressively investigating the Catholic Church. The newspapers had already reported on St. Michael's 6% solution, and they'd be sure to revisit the story if Scahill went public with the news he'd been fired. So the priest stood strong. I'm so convinced of the correctness of what I'm doing, he said, that I am risking that suspension. If you want to risk suspending me, then do it. The two men stared at each other. No priest had ever challenged the bishop like this before, not in Springfield anyway. Without another word, Dupre rose from his chair and left the room, and Father Scahill exhaled a long sigh of relief. The emergency diocesan retreat was held on the Tuesday and Wednesday of the second week of September 2002 at the very fancy and exclusive Cliff House Resort in Cape Nettick, Maine just south of Agunquit. The diocese got an excellent deal on rooms for the entire group because it was midweek, after Labor Day, and the general manager was Catholic. All the priests in the Springfield diocese, active and retired, were in attendance. 
the retreat was supposed to be a spiritual event to help deal with the child sexual abuse scandals that were dominating the newspapers and to explain that new rules were in the works that would prevent future scandals related to child molesting priests. Father Scahill found the whole gathering to be a bit suspect, especially since the retreat was being facilitated by the director and staff of St. Luke's Institute, one of the handful of psych clinics charged with the mission of fixing bad priests. And, as the Boston Globe had reported, St. Luke's didn't have a great track record. Many former patients re-entered the priesthood with a clean bill of mental health, only to end up reoffending and molesting more victims. To Father Scahill, the retreat seemed contrived, all the more so when the afternoon symposium morphed into an hours-long bitch session blaming the evil media for all the church's woes. Finally, Father Scahill had enough and decided to address his brother priests. He stood up and cleared his throat. I think we need to stop bashing the media. The media isn't the personification of evil. And I'm not in bed with the media, but the media is accomplishing more on this matter than the bishops have. I know that, and you know that. And as for my parish's decision to take a stand, I'm sure many other parishes would do the same, if given the chance. My brothers, Father Scahill, didn't see a single friendly face. No matter what anyone says, there is no virtue to obedience that requires the surrender of virtue. There is no virtue to obedience that requires one to go myoptically blind like the soldiers of Hitler. And there was silence, momentarily, until the bishop rose from his seat and bellowed, Father Scahill, you are being disobedient. You have broken your oath of office as a pastor, and you have cost the diocese thousands and thousands of dollars with the timing of your stunt. I'm listening to my parishioners and they tell me, silence, the bishop glowered at Father Scahill. Remember your vows. Father Scahill sat down. He was astounded. Not a single one of these 150 supposed holy men dared to back him up. Could only he see this madness? Five days after the retreat, Father Scahill called the bishop to set the record straight, man to man, instead of standing in front of all their brother priests and making allegations. And you know the money is in escrow awaiting policy change, Father Scahill said into the phone. I also find it strange that you have never bemoaned the millions and millions of dollars that Levine and the others have cost the church and falsely claim I've cost the diocese money. The bishop's answer to Father Scahill's insolence was to slam the phone receiver into the cradle. In November 2002, 
Unbeknownst to all except his inner circle, Bishop Dupre reluctantly submitted Richard Levine's name to the Vatican to be laicized, officially ending his priesthood. Reluctantly, because Dupre knew written reports could potentially be subpoenaed, ending up in the hands of opposition lawyers. And then things could get real messy. He didn't have too much of a choice, though. Six months earlier, the U.S. Conference of Bishops announced new protocols in dealing with misbehaving priests that would come to be known as, quote, the Dallas Norms. By this point, the American church had paid out over a billion dollars to victims, with billions more in settlements to come in the following decade, and the bishops knew they needed to take public action, which included dealing with the worst of the worst. Bishop Dupre didn't like it one bit. The public relations-type solutions were embarrassing enough. For example, priests were not permitted to be in a room with a closed door, alone with a child. A large poster was also hung in every parish foyer in Narthex, explaining how to file a complaint about inappropriate clerical behavior. Plus, all employees and priests were given training on identifying and reporting abuse and were designated mandatory reporters. For the first time ever, clergy and staff were legally required to report child abuse or endangerment to the proper civil authorities. Even more alarming, from Dupre's perspective, was the abandoning of secrecy in dealing with child-molesting priests. The Dallas Norms ordered dioceses to follow civil law in terms of reporting bad behavior. The new rules superseded the papal order of 1962 that Dupre believed permitted him to destroy records and use deceit to prevent outsiders from meddling in church affairs. Bishop Dupre, ever the lawyer, knew the new canon laws would be tough to enforce, at least initially, so he continued to delay implementing changes wherever he could. In further defiance, he intentionally neglected to provide Rome with the names of all accused priests under his command, which was another mandate of the Dallas norms. He was worried the Vatican would want to defrock the whole lot of Springfield's sinners, which meant the investigation files could be subpoenaed by the local legal sharks already circling the diocese. Dupre was also working on other ways to diminish the impact of possible laicization on Levine, including a special exception that would extend the child-molesting priest's benefits for an additional six months if he was defrocked. The bishop also set up a special bank account funded by anonymous donors to support Levine and other bad priests, almost like the one Father Scahill recommended, except it was administered by the Chancery, not an independent entity. This money, Dupre believed, would ensure none of his wards ended up hungry and homeless in a gutter. At St. Michael's in East Longmeadow, 
Father Scahill was beloved for taking a stand. In fact, only two families left the parish in disagreement, and several new families joined because of Father Scahill's bravery. Attendance at Mass was up, so were collections. And each week, Father Scahill deposited 6% of the parish's income into the escrow account, and his parishioners showered him with love and appreciation, which made his parochial life a joy. The monthly meetings of Bishop Dupre's Presbyterial Council were a different story. Father Scahill was persona non grata, shunned by his fellow priests and ignored by the bishop. By the December council meeting, though, he'd had enough of the bullshit. He'd totally escaped from the, quote, clerical box. It was time, he decided, to publicly challenge Dupre on the statement the bishop made back in February. There was a brief lull in the meeting, and Father Scahill seized his chance to address the captive audience. He stood and looked Bishop Dupre in the eye. Is it true that prior to his retirement, Bishop Weldon destroyed personal and personnel files? Bishop Dupre's eyes narrowed. He frowned and shook his head. I would not know about that. Oh, Father Scahill replied. I find that peculiar that you, as our bishop in this climate, doesn't know where the records begin or end, doesn't know where there are instances of the absence of records. The silence of a dozen priests was deafening. Father Scahill sat down. He'd said his piece and believed in his righteousness. The bishop had said what he'd said about the file's destruction, and no lie could change that now. But Father Scahill couldn't prove Bishop Dupre was lying because he didn't have access to the bishop's private files, and he didn't know what we know now, that Bishop Weldon, Monsignor Welch, Father Meehan, and probably several others personally destroyed the records. How else could so many complaints from angry parents go missing, never to be found, including at least two complaints against Bishop Dupre himself. As the year 2002 came to a close, Bill Zajac, the reporter with the Springfield Republican newspaper, received a mysterious email from an obviously temporary account. The message was terse and anonymous. Bishop Dupre had molested two boys in the 1970s and into the 1980s. The email also contained two names. One was a very common Vietnamese name. The other was an odd French name that seemed slightly familiar to the reporter. That was it. The names were all he had. To turn this tip into a published scoop, capable of bringing down a dirty, lying bishop would require some serious digging and luck. Obviously, his bosses would demand hard proof to run this story, and he knew they weren't going to cut him loose from his regular beat to investigate the tip. 
the whole thing could turn out to be a wild goose chase. Bishop Dupre cleared his throat and gave a fake smile to the congregation of a Northampton parish gathered to hear him make a special speech in the early spring of 2003. His new PR strategy to shift public attention away from the church's child-molesting priests was to reassert the church's moral authority on social issues and remind the faithful of their obligations to oppose abortion, the death penalty, and assisted suicide. As leader of the church, I am obliged to promote the teachings of the church and positions which are in harmony with them. Such issues are not simply political, the bishop intoned. They deal with issues of justice and fairness and good and evil, issues that pertain to the culture of life as opposed to the culture of death. Also, since the Massachusetts legislature was gearing up for a vote on extending the right of marriage to gays and lesbians, Bishop Dupre had another hot topic to target. Marriage supports the traditional family structure, and the institution of marriage is defined as lifelong and faithful committed relationship between a man and a woman. Of course, no one dared to challenge Dupre. He was the bishop, after all, the local voice of God, the moral authority of Western Mass, who had raped at least a couple of young boys and used legal maneuvers in attempts to delay, deny, and dismiss claims made by the many other victims of priestly evil. One day that spring, Bill Zajac figured out why one of the last names in the anonymous email sounded familiar. A woman who worked in the cafeteria of his kids' Catholic school in the city of Holyoke had the same last name. Mrs. L. was a kind soul and a devout Catholic who attended Mass several times a week. A little research showed that Mrs. L. had a son named John in his late 30s. That matched the name of one of the boys in the email, the name of the boy raped by Bishop Dupre from 1977 until 1982. It was bound to be a tough conversation. He'd have to explain why, as a newspaper reporter, he was interested in her family's relationship with Dupre. Finally, he approached the woman at the end of one of her work days and asked about her son. John? Zajac took a deep breath. Do you know if he knows Bishop Thomas Dupre? Of course he does, she said, beaming proudly. They're great friends. John and I attended the bishop's consecration. It was a real honor. They've been close for a long time, ever since John was in the eighth grade. She smiled broadly. Why do you ask? Well, Zajac paused. There was no way around it. To do his job, he had to ask uncomfortable questions and bring up sad memories. In this case, he had to explain to Mrs. L that an anonymous tipster alleged her spiritual leader had molested her son. 
Mrs. L. was visibly shaken by the news. Her eyes watered, her jaw quivered, her brow furrowed. Perhaps, like other parents of victims of priestly abuse, she'd eventually find some solace by finally knowing the source of her son's troubles. But in the moments after hearing this horrible allegation, she was heartbroken and angry. I will ask my son, Mrs. L. told the reporter, and I will let you know what he said. Father Scahill continued to shepherd his flock and run the parish. Being pastor was more than a full-time job. Funerals, weddings, baptisms, confessions, hospital visits. Plus, he was busy helping numerous victims of child-molesting priests. Every month, it seemed, another victim would reach out and ask to meet with Father Scahill. Even more frequently, victims dialed the St. Michael's Rectory seeking telephonic solace, and all the priest could do was listen and offer prayers and apologies and encourage them to seek counseling. Thanks to his friendship with Albert, who'd been molested by Levine for years, the priest understood that most victims' lives were fraught with impossibly complicated troubles. They needed professional help to deal with the trauma and depression. Each person's story was different, but their reason for seeking out Father Scahill was the same. They trusted him because he stood up to the diocese with his 6% solution and because Despite the abuse at the hands of priestly monsters, these men wanted God back in their lives. I'd like to start attending Mass again, more than one of his new friends told him. God-connectedness should be part of my sobriety, but it isn't. Can you help me? Father Scahill was honored they chose to speak to him, but their trust was a curse as well. The aging priest was exhausted after each meeting and every phone conversation. To listen to such tales of horror and suffering was draining and depressing. He had to frequently remind himself that his pain was nothing compared to the sorrow of these victims. It didn't help that Bishop Dupre and his minions were demonizing him on a regular basis. He also heard through the diocesan grapevine that Dupre was furious that victims sought guidance and prayers from Scahill. And of course, the bishop was still angry that St. Michael's had been withholding the 6% from its collections by then for over a year. It was no secret among chancery insiders that the bishop really wanted to get rid of Scahill. The only thing protecting the dissident priest, according to the chatter, was Scahill's friendly relationship with the media. Ousting him from his parish, or the Presbyterial Council, would generate tons of bad publicity and bring renewed focus to the fact that Father Richard Levine was still on the payroll. Mrs. L. sniffled into the phone. The lunch lady called Bill Zajac immediately after a conversation with John. 
but my son doesn't want to talk about it, and he certainly doesn't want anything in the newspapers. He admitted Bishop Dupre molested him as a boy on a regular basis for several years. The woman sounded incredulous. How could this happen with the bishop of all people? Mrs. L. began to sob. I'm so sorry, Zajac said. Do you think there's any chance John might change his mind and, and speak to me? Off the record, you, you know, on background? He doesn't even want me to bring it up again, she answered through her tears. But I begged him to visit a counselor and get some help. At least he agreed to do that. And I'm going to follow up and, and make sure he does. Well, Bishop, that's all. I just wanted to let you know the reporter had been snooping around, John said into the phone, and my mother got real upset. Thanks so much for calling, Bishop Dupre said. We need to get together soon. It's been ages since I've seen you. How about lunch sometime? Sure, John answered. He didn't really want to see the bishop, but he didn't have the nerve to tell him that. And could you do me another favor? Please ask your mother not to speak to that damn reporter. He's up to no good. On Tuesday, September 16th, 2003, Father Scahill learned, through media reports, that Bishop Dupre's legal team wanted Judge Constance Sweeney to dismiss cases of multiple complaints of sexual abuse by several priests that allegedly occurred prior to 1971. That news triggered the priest. Father Scahill decided it was time to take action. The priest made two phone calls, the first to a Boston Globe reporter who'd been pestering Father Scahill for an interview, and the second call was to local reporter Bill Zajac. He scheduled meetings with both of them for later in the day. He was ready to tell the world how Bishop Dupre had gleefully announced that the diocese was fortunate that Bishop Weldon's secret personnel files had been destroyed. By speaking to two reporters, the priest was sure the news would travel far and wide. Father Scahill has exaggerated many facts in Springfield. He is prone to wild speculation. Mark DuPont, diocesan spokesman, told the Boston Globe in response to Father Scahill's allegations about destroyed records. Bishop Dupre denies describing the records destruction as being good for the diocese. Then the PR man called Father Scahill's contentions, quote, an oversimplification of a complicated conversation. Father Scahill scoffed at the rebuttal. I know what he said, and I'm willing to testify under oath about it he told reporters when they called for a response. Is the bishop willing to do the same? On September 29th, two weeks after Father Scahill dropped his bombshell, Bishop Dupre staged a publicity stunt to spin the story his way. He gave a sworn deposition about the destruction of records and invited the media to attend. Dupre wanted to publicly state his denial, under oath and for the record, a rare and remarkable legal maneuver. A spectacle, almost. All the more unusual, given Dupre's normally elusive, secretive ways. 
So he stood in front of the television news cameras and local newspaper and radio reporters and, repeatedly, lied. Bishop Dupre, do you have any knowledge that any diocesan records or diocesan personnel files were destroyed by anybody? asked a lawyer representing the Diocese of Springfield. I do not have any knowledge that any church records were destroyed by anyone, Dupre paused. I assume that has not happened because I do not have that information, and I never would have said Bishop Weldon destroyed any papers because I don't have any knowledge that any church records were destroyed. Lies, lies, and more lies. Dupre lied with confidence because the only evidence of the file's destruction were secret documents locked away in his private vault, untouchable by non-priestly hands, or so he thought. Not until many years later, when the memos appeared in unsealed court files, would any civilian learn of the existence of diocesan paperwork directly contradicting what the bishop had long claimed. Those memos also prove that many people working within the diocese knew about the bishop's lies and kept their mouths shut. But not our hero, Father Scahill. Coincidentally, the priest had his own deposition on the same day the bishop perjured himself in front of the cameras and microphones. However, the priest's testimony was a two-hour low-key affair in his lawyer's office. Months later, a transcript of that session was released that shed light on Father Scahill's motivation for coming forward to publicly challenge the bishop. In the fall of 2003, Dupre's victim, Ben, was 40 years old and living in California. It had been 25 years since he and his mother and sisters immigrated to Western Mass from Vietnam, a quarter century since the evil priest befriended and raped him. Ben was still dealing with repercussions from the abuse, but thanks to therapy, he'd made a lot of progress, especially after coming out as a gay male years before. He was healthy, physically and mentally, and confident his life was on the right track. One day that fall, while reading his local California newspaper, Ben saw an Associated Press story about the effort to defeat the gay marriage legislation pending in Massachusetts, and he learned that Bishop Thomas Dupre was leading the effort. Dupre was such a vocal opponent of marriage equality that he'd become the media's go-to voice of dissent, always ready to preach homophobic rhetoric and deliver a good soundbite. Ben wished he'd never agreed to keep quiet about Dupre raping him. Back in 1990, if Ben had gone public about the abuse, Dupre would have declined his promotion to bishop, and the child-molesting priest wouldn't have a bully pulpit to preach his intolerance. What a hypocritical son of a bitch, Ben thought. The audacity of that man, that rapist, Ben knew he needed to find a way to deal with his fury. Otherwise, he'd go nuts. But what could he do? He wasn't ready to upend his life in order to bring down a powerful and dirty 
scoundrel. Bishop Dupre, sitting at his desk in his office in his mansion, flinched when he saw the return address on the piece of mail marked personal and private. This was the second letter from Mrs. L., John's mother, in as many months. The bishop opened the envelope and flinched again. Mrs. L. was again demanding a one-on-one meeting with the bishop to discuss his relationship with her son. In this letter, though, Mrs. L. went into greater detail. She wanted to discuss Dupre's inappropriate relationships with both John and Ben. Bishop Dupre put the letter back into the envelope. Like the earlier correspondence from Mrs. L., this mail was too sensitive to trust to the office shredder. Using scissors, he cut it into long strips, then into little pieces, confetti almost. He brushed the pieces into his wastebasket. The bishop loaded his typewriter with a fresh sheet of paper and began typing, not a response to Mrs. L. He'd never acknowledge her letters. Instead, he was writing to his bosses at the Vatican, asking to be retired as soon as possible, due to health reasons. He told them it was his heart. It is so nice to see you, Bishop Dupre said to John, patting the younger man's hand. They were sitting across from each other at a table in the public house restaurant in Sturbridge, 35 miles to the east of Springfield. The bishop hadn't heard from John in months since he'd telephoned and told the bishop that reporter Bill Zajac had contacted his mother. So nice to see you, Dupre repeated. How are you? John hesitated. John's new therapist had encouraged him to meet with Dupre, to tell him how he felt now, years later, after breaking free of his clutches, to hold the bishop accountable for stealing John's youth and abusing his body and brain. I'm getting better, John said, especially since I've been seeing a shrink. In fact, he's the one who suggested we have this meeting. Really? The bishop arched an eyebrow. Why is that? John paused. These were tough words to say. But, as his therapist explained, this confrontation had the potential to be very healing. John reached for his water glass and took a long sip. Then he stared the bishop straight in the eye. Yes, Dupre said. What? I never wanted to have sex with you, John said in hushed tones. I was just a kid, but you made me do it, and that was wrong. The bishop looked to his left and right. No one could hear what the younger man was saying. I'm sorry, the bishop said. I did not realize that was the case. I thought, well, anyways, I hope we can be friends for the rest of our lives. The bishop smiled weakly at John. And we keep this between ourselves. Suddenly, two women interrupted the conversation. Devout Catholics, they recognized the alleged holy man sitting at the table and couldn't contain themselves. Bishop Dupre, one said enthusiastically. So nice to see you. Oh, my bishop, said the other with a curtsy. She acted like she wanted to kiss Dupre's ring. Dear ladies, 
the bishop said, attempting to turn on his imitation of charm. What are your names and your parishes? As fall turned into winter, Bill Zajac assessed the situation. He knew that Bishop Dupre was a serial rapist, and he knew that Ben, John, and Mrs. L were all now in contact with Father Scahill, who once again provided a listening ear. Zajac's editors at the Springfield Republican understood this was a major story perhaps the biggest in the history of the newspaper. Such a huge scoop that only a handful of the top brass even knew Zajac was working on the piece. His bosses would publish the story, they promised, once he found a way to corroborate the details, preferably with court documents filed by the victims. Zajac was praying for a miracle. The sooner the better, journalistically, because word on the street was that the Boston Globe was sniffing around, sending reporters to Western Mass to extend the scope of their ongoing series of scoops about the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. Zajac needed one, or preferably both, of Dupre's victims to come forward and tell their stories. Then, Zajac knew, the bishop would have to resign in disgrace. The press release from the diocese announcing Richard Levine's laicization was sent out on January 20, 2004. The Vatican had actually informed Bishop Dupre of this action a couple months before, but the diocese claimed the decree was in Latin and needed to be translated. Thus, the delay. Levine was defrocked a dozen years after being arrested for raping Mark Baxter and almost 32 years after police had him as the prime suspect in Danny Croto's murder. But Father Scahill didn't stop withholding the 6%. He'd been clear with his demands, defrock and defund. From sources inside the chancery, Father Scahill had learned of Bishop Dupre's secret six-month extension of Levine's stipend and benefits. Plus, Father Scahill believed Dupre and the diocese would continue to support the now ex-priest through the bishop's new bank account, which was still unacceptable. And so, the St. Michael's protest continued. Less than a month later, on February 9, 2004, Bishop Dupre's holy protections began to crumble. It was a Monday morning, and Bill Zajac had once again asked John to tell him, on the record, about the abuse by the child-molesting priest. The victim, once again, refused. So Zajac went to his editors with a plan, very basic, Journalism 101, almost. It was time to ask the bishop himself about the allegations. Zajac called the chancery, requesting an interview with Dupre. Through his spokesman, the bishop wanted to know what the interview would be about. In response, Zajac provided John and Ben's names. Then, via the spokesman, the bishop asked for a list of questions. 
The next morning, Zajac emailed the questions about the bishop's child-raping past. Reportedly, the PR man printed the email without reading the questions and placed the sheet of paper in an envelope marked confidential, which was then hand-delivered to Dupre. Minutes later, Dupre telephoned the Vatican and asked to be retired immediately because of his heart problems. Dupre, of course, was lying. His heart was fine. It was his soul that was rotten. But the truth never mattered to the child-molesting bishop. He was all about protecting his own interests. That's why he lied to the Vatican and to his second-in-command, Monsignor Sneezak, and then escaped to parts unknown to avoid the media circus that was soon to follow. At noon, the day after Dupre left under the cover of darkness, Monsignor Sneezak called a press conference and announced that the bishop's sudden resignation was connected to health issues and that Dupre had checked into an undisclosed location for treatment for his heart condition. Zajac and his editors knew different, of course, the bishop vanishing right after he received a list of probing questions about raping young boys was too much of a coincidence. Zajac called the diocese and asked the PR spokesman if the bishop had answered any of his questions before resigning. Zajac's call was transferred to Monsignor Sneezak, who denied knowing anything about the allegations, and reportedly told Zajac that he was pissed that the bishop left him to clean up the mess. It took the editors and publisher of the Springfield Republican less than an hour to make the groundbreaking journalistic decision. Despite the absence of court documents and on-the-record accounts, they were gonna run the story. The timing of the bishop's sudden departure spoke louder than any witness statement or police reports. And, for the journalist, Dupre's quick exit confirmed his low moral character, which added credence to the allegations made by John's mother and others. By mid-afternoon, the newspaper published the scoop about the child-molesting bishop on their website. Monsignor Sneezak immediately issued a clarification to his earlier press conference, explaining the staff had been unaware at the time of the allegations against the bishop. Then, the story of the disappearing child-molesting bishop went viral. It took less than a week for reporters to locate Dupre, holed up at St. Luke's, the Baltimore psych clinic that specializes in treating child-molesting priests, a clinic, by the way, that doesn't have a cardiac unit or a heart specialist. Then, a couple days later, John and Ben came forward and confirmed they'd been molested by Dupre. Their lawyers provided many gruesome details about the rape and abuse, to which Dupre's lawyer declined to comment. Springfield is known as the City of First. The list is long and varied, but here are the big notables. It's the birthplace of basketball, home of the Indian Motorcycle, and Smith & Wesson. The first fire truck debuted here. 
So did vulcanized rubber, the repeating rifle, and the steam-powered car. And here's another first. In September 2004, eight months after resigning, Thomas Dupre became the first American bishop indicted for child rape. A Hamden County grand jury, after hearing testimony from John and Ben, charged the bishop with two counts of child rape. But within a day of the indictment, the district attorney dropped the charges, explaining that the statute of limitations had expired. So Dupre never spent a night in jail for his crimes. In fact, he remained hidden away at St. Luke's for two and a half years. Usually, priests remain at the clinic for six months maximum because beds for troubled clergy were in high demand and expensive. Unless the diocese negotiated a discount for Dupre's long-term stay at 300 bucks a day, the bill for housing the disgraced bishop would have totaled almost $300,000. Despite his resignation, the phantom of Dupre was still very much at the center of the diocese's legal troubles. In civil court, though, not criminal, which is where he truly belonged. Here's where the story gets crazy, but in a very boring way. After Dupre's middle-of-the-night flight from his mansion, the diocese's legal strategy suddenly shifted. Instead of more delays, the diocese now wanted to combine the many suits by many victims against many priests into one huge lawsuit. The courts and the plaintiff's lawyers agreed. And in the fall of 2004, the diocese settled with 45 victims for a little more than $8 million and were once again spared the embarrassment of going to trial and publicly confessing to the sins of their priests. Then the diocese turned around and sued six of their insurance companies for the cash to pay the victims. Their basic argument was that their liability coverage should cover the victims' claims. The insurers, however, countered, saying that the diocese didn't have child-molesting priest insurance. I've read this entire court case, which raged for almost four years, and I've posted a photo of the entire case file at devilsanddirtbags.com just so you can see how friggin' big the damn thing was. As in most legal dramas involving insurance matters, the bulk of the documents are quite dull. However, during this civil litigation, the insurance companies were able to request a huge number of documents as part of the discovery process. They wanted to prove Bishops Dupre and McGuire and Weldon did a lousy job managing problem priests and thus were liable for their sins. As a result, a handful of pages of important evidence trickled into view, including the ones that I've published at the Devils and Dirtbags website, many available to the public for the first time. These include the secret memos written by Dupre, acknowledging the destruction of records. If you're interested in the diocese versus insurance company sort of legal battle, which involved litigation too complex to explain in this podcast, then you should visit the website springfielddiocese.blogspot.com. 
I've posted a link in this episode's show notes because this website is well-written and a comprehensive look connected to the insurance company lawsuit. For our purposes, though, all we need to know is this. If the diocese had not sued their insurers, in all likelihood, there would not have been the physical proof that clergy records were destroyed. That's right. The incriminating evidence proving Dupre lied about records destruction would have remained secret if the diocese didn't try to get the insurers to pay the victims of the child molesting priests. We're going to return to Bishop Dupre one last time in this season's finale when we discuss a lengthy civil court deposition where Dupre pleaded the fifth hundreds of times to prevent incriminating himself. Thomas Dupre and his dark heart lived for another 13 years after fleeing Springfield, and due to diocesan rules, Dupre and his victims would never go through the standard misconduct commission investigation, and, of course, he was never punished by the church or the state. After his two-and-a-half-year stint in the St. Luke's psych ward, Dupre moved into a comfortable Washington, D.C. area nursing home for elderly priests, where he lived until his death at age 84 in January 2017. Today in Springfield, he's persona non grata, a ghost of the villain that church officials pray would disappear for good. But they're stuck with Thomas Dupre forever in their official records, listing the child-raping liar as the seventh bishop of Springfield, with an asterisk, of course, denoting his disgrace. Thanks for listening to Devils and Dirtbags. We're 10 episodes into this sordid tale. And with three episodes remaining, I'm going to take a short break over the holidays. Episode 11 will be published on New Year's Day, entitled The Suspected Murderer, Part 4, I knock on the door of Richard Levine in an attempt to interview the reclusive sociopath and he invites me in for a chat. Then, in episode 11, you're going to meet an amazing woman named Kat, Danny Crodo's youngest sister and my high school classmate, and you'll hear how her brother's murder impacted her family like, quote, a nuclear bomb. Then, in season one's finale, Child Molesting Priest ends with episode 13 where I tie up some loose ends and discuss another hero in the case, and then visit the site under the bridge where Danny was murdered 
1972. Please tell your family and friends about this podcast, and I'd really appreciate you reviewing and rating the show wherever you download. Happy holidays, and remember, watch out for the devils and dirtbags. Mm-hmm.